0: To the book of Matthew, chapter number 26. Matthew, chapter number 26. We'll, we'll be reading these verses actually several times during this series of messages, and I realize tonight, you know, you, we're getting started a little later than normal, but that's all right. I don't think anybody has anything all that important that they've just got to do, and so we're glad you came. Verse number 26 of chapter 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Again, I say, we're going to be looking at those verses over and over for the next three or four weeks. Tonight, we're talking about the elements of the Lord's Supper, and it's easy to see, as everybody knows, there are two elements to the Lord's Supper. But that doesn't mean that everybody agrees on what they are or what they mean. The late Mr. DeHaan, many of you maybe are old enough to have listened to M.R. DeHaan many years ago on the radio and And just about all of you have received Our Daily Bread, the wonderful uh, devotional book that I've been receiving copies of that since I first started preaching in 1966. And he was a great teacher in a lot of ways, but he claimed that a banana and water would serve the same purpose. Others have said that there would not be anything wrong with using potato chips and Coca-Cola. So there's obviously a lot of controversy in this area, and the purpose of our message tonight is just to see what the Bible says about the elements. I mean, after all, that's our only authority, and uh, that is the one thing, the only thing that can really settle the issue. Now, the first major issue we need to decide has to do with the manner in which we interpret the Scriptures pertaining to the elements. I'm going to point out two serious errors that you need to be mindful of. Number one has to do with what the Roman Catholics teach, and they speak of the elements and use a term called transubstantiation. That means they believe that the bread and the wine actually become the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, lest you think I'm misjudging them, let me read to you this statement from the Council of Trent way back in 15 and 51. So this is what they themselves say, what Catholics believe. This Holy Synod now declares anew that through consecration of the bread and the wine, there came about a conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the the vine into the substance of the blood. And this conversion is by the Holy Catholic Church conveniently and properly call transubstantiation. So now that's what they believe. I really doubt that anybody here tonight believes that. I hope you don't. Well, somebody comes along and they say, well, yeah, they had it wrong, but the Protestants had it right. Well, let's consider then what the Lutherans and the Anglicans and uh, the Protestants, what they believe, and what they believe in this regard is called consubstantiation. And what they mean by that is that in the elements, that the elements do not become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but have always been. In other words, there is something, some part in the bread and in the wine that they say has contains literally part of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could you get so confused about something that ought to be so simple? The confusion arises from this. They are trying to force a literal interpretation on what Jesus used as a symbol. Jesus used many times, metaphors to illustrate truth. And I think even the kiddos here understand this. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, does that mean that every door you see, that it contains literally a part of the Lord Jesus Christ? Was He saying, I am actually literally The door? Or when he said, I am the good shepherd, is that what he meant? That he was literally the shepherd of a flock of sheep? Or when he said that I am the vine, did he literally mean that he is the vine? And you go out here and find the vine and that you could call that vine a part of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well... The elements used in the Lord's Supper are symbols to remind us of Christ. The bread is is representing the body of Christ, and then the fruit of the vine is representing the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I said in our last message that oftentimes, way back in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, that the Bible often uses certain things in order to illustrate spiritual truths. So when Jesus says, I am the, the door, we know He's not speaking about a literal door. He's using that to symbolize something. And you go back to the Old Testament and you think of the tabernacle and the temple, and we know that every piece of furniture, every article, every Uh, every material that was used, whether it was the badger skin or whether it was the cedar or the gold or the silver, everything about the tabernacle and the temple represented something to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nobody thought that was literally Christ, but it represented Christ. So when we talk about the elements of the Lord's Supper, and kids, pay attention because, listen, you need to understand this. If you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, you need to understand what you're doing. And we talk about the elements. We're talking about the bread and the fruit of the vine. Now notice verse 6. We obviously have two subjects under discussion, so let's consider the bread first. And he says, verse twenty-six, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take eat, this is my body. Now, although not specifically stated, we have reason to believe that this bread is unleavened bread. And and I say that because we know from what the Bible says that when Jesus met with them there in the upper room, the Bible tells us that He met there with them to observe the Passover, and the Passover, according to Exodus 13, 7, required unleavened bread. Now, the bread is speaking about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that it is unleavened, speaks about the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the leaven was to be purged out because it is typical of of Christ. That is the bread and the leaven typical of sin. And, And Jesus said in John 6, 48, He says here that He is the bread of life. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give him is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. That verse says far more than I have time to to delve into. For one thing, it's certainly a verse that knocks the theory of Calvinism in the head because Jesus makes it clear that He died for the whole world, not just a part of it. He tasted death for every man, the Bible says. And that bread is representing the broken body of Jesus Christ. There there is no way that I could ever, regardless of how hard I try, ever make this real enough. When we think about what Jesus suffered there on the cross, I'm talking about the physical suffering that His body was beaten Beyond the point of recognition. In fact, you could not tell that he was a man. Every joint of his body was pulled out of socket. His visage, the Bible says, was marred more than any man. So he's beaten beyond recognition. The body, the physical suffering of Jesus Christ. And when we partake of the Lord's table and we put that bread in our mouth, we are identifying with the sacrifice that He made for us, that He suffered so we could live. I'm the bread of life. Now, the second element has to do with the fruit of the vine. Notice verse 27, And He took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this is the most controversial part of the Lord's Supper, the identity of the liquid that is in the cup. Was it fermented wine? Was it Grape juice. And so, in the remainder of this message, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to answer the objections to using what we call unfermented wine or grape juice. Secondly, I want us to ascertain the true meaning of the element. So, let's start by answering the objections because there are some that do. Object and say that, you know, that we're wrong because we only use grape juice. Here's what you need to notice before anything else, and that is that, that this term, fruit of the vine, notice the fruit of the vine, that is the only term ever used in reference to the Lord's Supper, in, in reference to the liquid that's in the cup. It's called the fruit of the vine. The word wine is never used in that reference. And uh, by the way, even if it was, it does not necessitate that it is a fermented wine. Here's what we need to understand. It, whether you're in the looking in the Hebrew, whether you're looking in the Greek, and I'm not, a, I'm not a scholar in anything, but, you know, I can pick up Strong's Concordance and I can look up the meaning of words the same as anyone can... And it's easy to see that these are generic terms. In in other words, they can designate the, the, the juice of the grape regardless of what stage it's in. Now, there's been a lot of argument about this, a lot of debates about it, a lot of harsh, harmful things that's been said about this. And believe me, it's not my purpose to be contentious or unkind. My only goal is to help you discover the truth as I believe it's found in the Word of God. And, and if that offends you, I'm sorry, that's not my intent. Now, let's look at the objections. I just jotted down five or six things, that objections that people make to us using what we call pure grape juice. Objection number one, they say there is leaven in grape juice, and it has to be purged out by the fermentation, and the theory is that the fermentation purifies. Well, let me contend that the fermentation putrefies instead of, instead of it, uh, instead of it purifying, it putrefies. The point is that the grape juice contains a certain amount of leaven. But, I mean, we've got to admit that. That's a scientific fact. But what about fermented wine? It's all fermentation. In fact, to make fermented wine, oftentimes they would introduce leaven into the grape juice to make it ferment. And so, I don't know how you can object to saying, "Well, there's some fermentation, you know, or some impurities in the in the grape juice." Uh, and so, we've got to get it out, and so we're we're going to ferment it. A friend of mine by the name of Davis Huckabee wrote these words, and. In this regard, he said, the only symbolism required by the phrase the fruit of the vine is that of being crushed so that its juice might be poured out. The purity of the Lord is symbolized by the unleavened bread, but the Scripture is silent as to the fruit of the vine ever symbolizing the purity of Christ's blood, and, and we go beyond what is written if we insist upon this. Now, I'll bet that's something you haven't heard before. Chances are most of you have not heard that because usually we make a big deal out of the matter of whether it's got leaven or whether it doesn't have leaven. And it is a big deal in reference to the bread. But as he said, and you have to admit, whenever whenever you look at just strictly what the Bible teaches, you're going to look in vain to find something there that says that the matter or the amount of leaven in the grape juice or the wine, that it in any way speaks to the pureness of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... If it doesn't, I don't know about you, I have to come to the conclusion, if there is some natural impurities in grape juice, that it is still better than making it totally impure by fermenting it. Fermentation is what? It's, it's rotting something, decay. It's not bringing life, it's bringing Death. The second objection is that the word wine, they say, always speaks of that which is fermented, and and that's not true. Again, whether you're talking about the Greek language or the Hebrew language, whether or not. now, Now, listen, kids, in all fairness, you need to understand this, because we've got to be fair in this regards, and whenever you see the word wine in the Bible, it does oftentimes refer to a fermented drink but not always. It's a generic term, and in, in, in order to to determine whether it's speaking about something fermented or not fermented, we have to decide that based on what the context is. In other words, you look at all of the surrounding verses and what, uh, what the Bible has taught elsewhere, and you come to the conclusion, is this speaking about something that's fermented or is it not fermented? So anyone who claims the idea that there's You know, two different kinds of wine. That's a recent invention because wine is simply the fruit of the vine. It can be, it can be fermented or not fermented. It's the fruit of the vine. Here's the third argument. They say that grape juice should not, could not rather be preserved apart from fermentation. Now, I can, I can remember as a young preacher thinking, you know, that's really a good point when you stop and think about it, because you had travelers in that day that had to travel from point A to point B, and by the way, they didn't have all of the modern-day chemicals we have for preservatives, and they didn't have refrigeration and things of that nature, and so how do you, how, how do you keep it pure? Well, the idea was, is you ferment it. Now... Don't misunderstand because that was practiced by people. That was a genuine practice. But here's what you need to realize. When they did ferment it, they fermented it down to the point that it's not at all what we would recognize as an alcoholic beverage today. They had a slight amount of alcohol in it as a result of the fermentation. And then before they drank it, they added water to it. I mean, we're talking about by this point, it's so it's so weak that if you're drinking it to get a buzz, you're out of luck because it was just fermented to a slight degree in order to to help preserve it in that sense. But then I read a book by a fellow the name of Patton, and it had the title of the book is "Bible Wines and the Laws of Fermentation." It's an amazing little book. I don't have any idea where you would find it other than my other than my library, and you better not get it out of there. But Bible wines and laws of fermentation, Patton goes back and he looks at the different ways. And I, I'm sure not an expert, but he looks at all of the different ways in which they could preserve. The grape juice, and one of the ways were well, they reduced it down to to like a paste. I, I guess you you could say it's like strawberry jam, or you know, maybe well I ought to stay with the true picture, and you got grape jam or jelly or whatever. But they reduced it down to a paste uh, that they could keep with them. Add the water to it, stir it up, and uh, and a la you you've got a glass of grape juice, and so. The whole point is there were other ways for them to preserve it other than by fermenting it. The fourth argument is this. They say, well, it must be, uh, must be a, a fermented wine because the Corinthians got drunk. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. These are the verses that they refer to in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And as you know, Paul is dealing with the subject of the Lord's Supper And He's giving them down the road, so to speak. He says, notice in verse number 20, When ye therefore come together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken." Here's the idea, Paul is saying with your attitude you cannot properly observe the Lord's Supper, it's impossible. And they were doing a dangerous thing, by the way, showing no regard for the Lord's table. They cared so little one for another that when some got there... They just went right ahead and they had turned it into an ordinary meal evidently and they went ahead and ate and they left and the others would come in and the others had already started before them. And, you know, it may, it may have been a, a matter of those that were rich and those that were poor and I don't know all of the details and the ramifications, but here's, here's where the issue lies. They say, he says, whenever some come in, the, the rest of them are, They've already eaten, they're already drunken, and so people jump to the conclusion, well, if they're drunk, that simply means that it's an alcoholic beverage because you can't get drunk on grape juice. The fact of the matter is, and you can take, you know, any Greek lexicon and look up the word and find that the word there... That is translated drunken simply means satiated. It means being filled. In in other words, as they had already eaten to their full, they had already drunk, as it were, to their full. It does not necessitate them being inebriated. It has nothing to do with that. By the way... By the way, if it was the case that some of them were using let's say an alcoholic beverage in regards to the lord's table, and let's say they they were drunk as a skunk, that still doesn't make it right remember he is he is condemning what they're doing, not commending them. So let's not use that as a as an argument for using fermented wine now here's the big one number five. They say, well, Jesus turned the water into wine, and if He turned the water into wine, then we ought to use it as an element in the Lord's Supper. Whenever we had our classes for our deacons, and we dealt with the qualifications for deacons, and, I mean, we went through those one by one, and I spent a lot of time on this very thing. We talked about it in great length, and... Uh, look at a lot of scriptures and a lot of documentation and so forth and I'm not going to do that tonight I'm going to I'm going to give you one quote that that I think really sums up how I feel about it and and exactly what I believe the truth is and uh, if you're over 50 years old and you've lived in Texas very long you've heard the name Sam Morris Sam Morris was the executive director of the National Temperance League. Sam Morris was a an old-fashioned Baptist preacher that was known for his his you know his uh, his fighting his staunch stand but especially in regards to the matter of alcohol. This is what he said. Jesus never contradicted the old scripture. He always Reaffirmed, upheld, magnified it. In fact, he said, "...one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled." I am not come to destroy. All right? Now let's see where we get. The Old Testament very plainly said, "...woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink." Now, if you say, because of the word onus, the Greek word for wine or grape juice, permitted it being intoxicating wine, if you say well, that means He turned it into intoxicating wine, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ pulling the curse of Almighty God down on His own head. Woe unto Him that giveth His neighbor drink! If you say it means intoxicating wine, then you have the Lord Jesus utterly ignoring the plain, emphatic warning of the Old Testament which says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Am I right about it? And I'm still quoting him. Am I right about it? If you say that it is intoxicating wine simply because the Greek word onus, "...would permit that interpretation, then you have the Lord Jesus Christ denying, abrogating, and destroying the plain, unvarnished admonition to look not thou upon the wine when it is red. Such a position is wholly untenable, and I will stand anywhere before any group, anywhere on the top side of God's earth, and say, No, sir, my Lord did not turn wine into intoxicating... did not turn water into intoxicating wine, and the Bible does not teach that he did. I'm just going to tell you that I agree 100% with what he says there. And I say that not because he said it, I say that because he's quoting what the Bible says over in the book of Proverbs, look not on the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. That's obviously speaking about fermentation. And whenever the Bible warns us, woe us unto him that giveth his neighbor to drink. Now wait a minute, how can the Bible condemn somebody for giving his neighbor to drink and then the Lord turn around And go exactly contrary to what the Bible teaches about that and say, oh, well, ordinarily, you know, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be right to do that. But because this is a ceremony instead of a, instead of a meal or whatever else, it's going to be all right. And so, so you can do it. Well, I don't buy that. Now, and I know this can go on and on. I want to give you one more. Objection that they make. They say, since Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover, He must have used fermented wine. Well, Davis Huckabee writes, The reader will probably be amazed, as was this writer, to learn that fermented wine was never a part of the Passover celebration by divine command or example, that the Jews used fermented wine in their perverted celebration of the Passover may or may not be true, but this in no way proves that it was used by Jesus. Now, you know, to me, this is the easiest way to come to a conclusion. When we're talking about the element of the Lord's Supper and whether it was fermented or not, and notice again, that it always uses the phrase fruit of the vine. Jesus could have used the word wine, but He didn't. I mean, He could have used the word wine and not been wrong about it, because it's a generic term. It could have had reference to, to something that was not intoxicating or something that was not fermented. He could have properly done that, but since he knows all things, I think he could see very well that, you know, this is really setting us up for a huge debate. If he uses the word wine, some way or another we found a way to debate it anyway. That's what shocks me. Now, when you say the fruit of the vine, whenever you go out here and you find Whenever you can go out here and pick grapes and crush the grapes and get fermented wine, then I'll agree with you that it would be alright to use fermented wine. I've never seen any fermented wine that is the natural product of the vine. The fruit of the vine. That's the product of the vine. And the vine does not produce fermented wine. Fermentation is the work of man. Right? Right? It's not a natural product. Well, that that ought to end it as far as I'm concerned, but let's do something else. Let's suppose that, that fermented wine could properly be called the fruit of the vine. In other words, we'll bend over backwards and say, All right, even though the Lord always referred to the element in the cup as the fruit of the vine, it would be all right if we called it wine. Again, designating it as wine does not insist upon it being fermented. Because as I said, the word wine in the Greek or the Hebrew, either one, is a generic term that you can apply both ways. Now here's the thing, I've got, I've got a lot of dear preacher friends, and I, I mean, we've just agreed to disagree, we don't fuss about it, we don't fight about it. Uh, I will say this, lest you think that this is everywhere, let, let me tell you what, uh, probably per church, that Houston has, has more churches, Baptist churches that use wine than, than just about any place I've ever been. There's a few more pockets, but it's, it's really the exception. But we're not going to base our decision on whether it's the popular thing to do. I'm just trying to get you to see that uh, that I know a lot of preachers that use fermented uh, wine for the Lord's Supper. And we love one another. We, uh, we don't get in an argument about it. And they say, well, it really doesn't make any difference. You know, you, yeah, if you want to use grape juice, that's fine. Now, I don't understand this. If it's okay to use grape juice... And if the Bible commands us to be blameless, why don't we settle this issue once for all and remove all of the argument by just using grape juice? Why do we set ourselves up for all of this dissension in the Lord's church by bickering about, you know, whether it's this or whether it's that? Well... You say, well, if it, you know, if it could be either one, then why not go over to their side? Well, I didn't say it could be either one. They said it could be either one. Do you ever think about this? When we observe the Lord's Supper? all of those that have been saved, all of those that are members of the Lord's church here, uh, the table is open to, to them. That includes children. We're talking about people 8, 9, 10 years old. The last time I checked, it's against the law to serve alcohol to, to minors. And I don't know of any exception. I could be wrong. I'm not a lawyer. But, and, and, and I know that the courts evidently do not bother us in this regards. But if it's against the law to serve alcohol to minors... Uh, you know, it looks to me like we're violating the law in doing that. I mean, let's suppose some church comes along and they say, "Well, we we observe the Lord's Supper and we use fermented wine and we insist that you drink at least a pint of it." I mean, you got people staggering around, you know, inebriated then, and little children. Then you've got the issue of buying the wine. Somebody says, Oh, we don't buy it. We make it. Oh, you're going to be a bootleg it, in other words. <laughs> That's in that kind of against the law to do that. Now, this message tonight is not just the whole. And, and if you think this message is all about whether it's right or whether it's wrong. To drink alcoholic beverages, you're wrong. That's not what the message is about. The message is about the Lord's Supper and the element in the cup. If we were going to discuss all of the other issues and, 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 you know, I don't know about your background, but I know what I was when the Lord saved me. I was a drunk. I was a stinking drunk. I was an alcoholic. I, 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 my grandpa died of drinking that stuff. And I was well on my way. And again and again, I'd I'd tell Bev that I'll never drink anymore. I'm through with it. I'm going to quit. I promise you, I'm going to quit. And finally, I realized I can't quit. Because I'm not controlling it. It's controlling me. And I've discovered that most people that believe in social drinking... Most people who say, Well, I can quit any time I want to, they never want to. And I can't think of anything more damaging. You know, there was some talk the other day about legalizing marijuana. And don't you dare misunderstand what I'm saying. But I tell you, listen, I can see some of the arguments that these people that are for legalized marijuana, I understand the arguments that they're using because I, I gotta tell you, I don't understand how it is that we can legalize alcohol and tax alcohol and make billions of dollars for our government off of alcohol and then say you can't smoke a joint. That's stupid. I I know it got real quiet then, and you're, you're thinking, well, you know, that I ought to agree we shouldn't legalize marijuana. I didn't say legalize it. I think we ought to make it all illegal. But it's not fair to look to that one group and say, well, you can't do that. You can't smoke marijuana, but I can drink all of the booze I want. And I got to tell you, I would have had a bit of a problem whenever I observed the Lord's Supper for the first time, with my past, and sitting down at the Lord's Supper, and my, my supper, and my pastor serving me alcohol. Well, you say, but it's all right then. It's. It's all right because you're using it for a good purpose. You're using it in the Lord's Supper. If it's all right to use fermented wine in the Lord's Supper, as, 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 long as, you, as long as you do it, you know, to the point that you don't get drunk, as long as you do it in moderation, isn't that the argument we generally make? Drink to moderation. Let your kids use it in the Lord's Supper because it's, you know, it's just a little bit. It won't hurt them. Let me tell you, if it's all right to use an alcoholic beverage in the Lord's Supper, then I've, I, I agree 100% it's all right to use it anywhere. You're telling me that it's okay for me to come into the house of God and with the saints of God and use an alcoholic beverage, and I can't go out here to a restaurant and enjoy a beer with my steak? That's that's hypocrisy. If it's alright to use it in the Lord's Supper, it's alright to drink it anywhere in moderation. I've never heard of anybody's life being ruined because of drinking grape juice. But I know a lot of people whose lives have been ruined and families torn apart as a result of alcohol. And believe me, if the Bible said that I insist that you use an alcoholic beverage in the Lord's Supper, whether I understood it or not, that is exactly what I would do. But I don't see that at all. And if I'm given any kind of an option at all, then I'm going to be blameless. God will not be able to accuse me of putting strong drink or or alcohol to my neighbor's lips because I'm not going to do it. Well, we could go on, but I'm going to wrap this up ascertaining the meaning, the meaning of the fruit of the vine. And it's evident, listen to Jesus again, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. You see, the idea of the blood of atonement has been with us since the Garden of Eden. There were Adam and Eve sinned against God, and there were God made took the coats of skin to cover their nakedness. And throughout the Bible, we see the blood sacrifices, all of which spoke about Christ. Hebrews 9.22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. It's so amazing that although we are guilty and vile To the core, to think that Jesus would shed His precious blood for us, it boggles my mind. Peter said, "...For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot, Whatever else you think, please understand this, that when you put the cup to your lips, it is though that you are partaking of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. More, listen carefully and I'll be through in a minute. Far more important than trying to win this debate about the elements of the Lord's Supper is this. Have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Him as your Savior? The devil loves to get us bickering about everything else to the point that we lose sight of what it's all about and lose the blessing You can win the debate and still die and go to hell if you haven't been born again. Because being right about the Lord's Supper doesn't mean you're right with God. I can say everything scripturally here, but if I haven't been born again, I'm lost as a billy goat. I'm not saying that the identity of the elements are unimportant. I'm saying that it is of secondary importance when you compare it to what the Bible teaches about salvation. Before we observe the Lord's Supper, before you put the cup to your lips, each and every one of us needs to examine ourselves and ask ourselves this question. Have I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior? Am I depending on nothing more than His shed blood for the salvation of my soul? Because that's what it's all about. And God help us that we never get to the point that we can put that cup to our lips and eat of that bread and not be moved by the thought of what Jesus Did for us. Let's stand, Father. Forgive our stuttering and our stammering. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, for all of the times that we focused on the wrong things instead of the important things. We just pray that Your Spirit might be our teacher and guide in all that we do. And Heavenly Father, I pray that throughout all of these messages that we'll never lose sight of what this is all about. It's, it's all about You, Jesus. It's not about us crossing swords with, with some other church that we disagree with. It's not about us winning a debate or anything at all like that. It's about us... In total, complete sincerity, partaking of those elements with a pure heart, with a clean life, and doing it all in remembrance of You that You might be glorified. Now help us to examine ourselves, to think about the needs of our life wherein that You would be pleased and help us to deal with those issues and be clean vessels in Your service. For we beg it in Jesus' dear name. While we sing this verse of invitation, it might.